I invite you to take your Bibles out and turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 9. This is sermon number 39 in our verse-by-verse, week-by-week study through this Gospel. Next Sunday, we'll conclude this, past, this chapter, Lord willing, before we head into Christmas. And then the new year, we'll pick right back up, second Sunday in January, with John chapter 10, if the Lord is gracious to us. But we're going to look at John chapter 9 in a sermon I've entitled, Grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. I landed on this title on Thursday of this week. Uh, I had been preparing and studying and thinking through all that's uh, the nuances of this passage, and Thursday morning it just kind of hit me like a ton of bricks that what we see happening in this passage is Jesus demonstrating grace upon grace. Now, if you've been in church at all, you've no doubt heard that phrase before, grace upon grace, but you may not remember where it comes from. It actually comes right from here in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John begins with this profound and poetic prologue, where for 18 verses, he goes through and he begins to introduce to us, the reader, themes and concepts that will be fleshed out and expanded upon throughout the 21 chapters of the book of John. And one of those uh, things that he introduces one of those themes that he introduces that I believe is is incredibly fleshed out in the chapter 9 that we're going to study today is this concept of grace upon grace. In fact, look at it on the screen from John chapter 1. This is verse 16. The Bible says, for from his, that's Jesus, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. This is the promise of the gospel of John, and this is the promise of Jesus. From his fullness, from the essence of the person and the nature and the character of Christ, all of us, everyone included, have received grace upon grace. Friend, it doesn't matter this morning your particular opinion or ideas about Jesus or the gospel or the Bible or the church. You are today a recipient of grace. You are seated right now. You are existing right now because of grace. It doesn't matter where you are on that faith continuum. You're living in the grace of Jesus. Jesus is recorded in the, all four Gospels as giving sight to five different individuals who were blind. But here in John chapter 9, it is the only one who has been blind from birth. He suffers from congenital blindness, and Jesus gives him his sight back. Now, the actual healing event where Jesus heals the man born blind, it only takes two verses, verses 6 and 7. The rest of the chapter is the controversy and the conversation and the questioning that transpires as a result of that healing work. Now, we're going to briefly recover some of the ground we looked at last week But I think it's important to understand the progression that's in this passage. We will see, Lord willing, of Jesus' grace upon grace upon grace in this formerly blind beggar. Uh, First, let's look at verse 1 through 7. This is going to reacquaint us with the actual miracle. The Bible says in John 9, verse 1, As he, that's Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. 
And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. What a miracle. Now, again, I don't want to recover a lot of the ground um, that we've looked at last week in this message, uh, that we've looked at the first few sections of chapter 9. But I do want us to think about a couple of things. One, Jesus is very intent on finding this beggar. No doubt he was a fixture beside the gates of the temple complex, and he had been seen many times by Jesus. But this time Jesus goes by him, and he looks at him so intently that his disciples notice him, notice him. And so they ask this question. It's a dumb question. And Jesus reveals it's a very dumb question. But their question was based in the prevailing philosophy of their day that if anyone experienced any kind of tragedy, any kind of trial, any tribulation, it must be directly connected to some sin. It's this idea that we hear sometimes today of karma. Oh, karma's going to get him. You do this, bad, you're going to get bad because of it. And this was basically the prevailing idea and philosophy of their day. Surely, his blindness is directly connected to something someone did, either him or his parents. And Jesus completely refutes and dismisses this moralism, mechanicalism that they had in their system of belief. He then lets them know, however, that suffering and trials are not without purpose. They are not without meaning. They have great purpose. They have great meaning. I'm not going to go into all that. If you want to know the purpose behind trials, listen to last week's sermon. But then Jesus does something particularly unique, something he's not recorded as doing in any of the other 35 or so miracles recorded in the four Gospels in our Bibles. He spits on the ground and makes some mud pies. What are you doing, Jesus? Why would you do this? I talked a little bit about that last week, why I think he did it. But after Jesus puts the mud in his eye, here's mud in your eye, he then exits the picture. Jesus doesn't show up again in the narrative until all the way down in verse 38. We'll consider that in just a little bit. But although Jesus is not there physically, he is very much the topic of conversation. Make no mistake, in the next few verses, in the next chapter, there are four distinct conversations that this man has with other people. And then finally, there's a fifth conversation that this man has again with Jesus when he shows back up in verse 38. And Jesus is very much the topic of their conversations. And through all of those, even when Jesus is absent, Jesus is working in this man's life. And what we will see is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And I wonder, do you know the grace of God in your life? Let's consider them together. Five conversations that correspond with the five points on my outline. I hope you had an outline that was in the bulletin so that you can follow along 
this morning. The first evidence of grace we see in this healed blind man is in verses 8 through 12. Number one, he is conscious. He is conscious of the person of Jesus. He becomes consciously aware of the person of Jesus, mindful of him. Now, he may have known of him. He may have heard about him. For instance, Jesus had caused quite a stir in the temple in the previous two chapters we've been studying in John's gospel. But now he becomes personally conscious of the person of Jesus. He becomes really aware of who he is. And this is really the first steps of the evidence of God's grace in your life. When you become consciously aware of Jesus. Friends, this is why we do missions. There are people, roughly one-third of the planet, that is not conscious of Jesus. They need to know. We need to tell them. And so he becomes aware of Jesus. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this paragraph because, again, we looked at it last week, but I want to remind us of a few things. Let's read verses 8 through 12 just to remind us. His first conversation is with some of his neighbors. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes open? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. This is the first conversation. Again, it's with his neighbors. And there's some confusion, there's some debate as to whether or not this is actually the guy who's been begging his whole life by the gate of the temple complex. Some people said, hey, I think this is the guy. Other people said, no, it can't possibly be the guy. He can see the whole time. This is just almost comical. He's saying, hey, guys, it's me. It's really me. I'm the man. I was there begging before. I was blind from birth, and now I can see. So they asked him, how? How can you possibly see? And and his response is very simple. Jesus, spit, dirt, mud, anoint, eyes, walk, wash, see. That's it. I don't know why or how. That's just what happened. And he begins to tell them this reality. But it's interesting the way he particularly refers to Jesus in this first conversation. He refers to him simply as the man called Jesus. It's just a guy. I know his name because people told me his name. The guy that told me to do this, he's just the man called Jesus. He's only heard of him. He's only heard his voice. He's only felt his touch. But now that his eyes are open, he's never seen him. He's, Jesus is absent from the situation. So he is expressing a bit of faith here, a bit. It's not blind faith, mind you. He can see, and he knows he can see. Perhaps he's heard somebody speak of this name Jesus. Perhaps he's heard something of his reputation. So he just affirms to, to the neighbors the identity of the, of the man. The man called Jesus. And I would say, if you're here today and you are conscious, aware of the man Jesus, that is a grace in your life. I can't remember a time in my life when I wasn't aware of Jesus. When I was younger, I had a drug problem. I was drugged to church every time the doors were open. (laughs) 
I was drugged Sunday morning for Sunday school, Sunday morning worship, Sunday evening worship, Wednesday night stuff. If the church had something on Tuesday or Thursday or Friday or Saturday, I was drugged there too. And I am thankful for that grace in my parents that they took me to church because it was in their commitment to take their children to church that we all became consciously aware on some level of Jesus. I became consciously aware of the person of Jesus. And that's where this man is. The man called Jesus did this. That's a grace. That's a grace. But we're going to see another area of grace upon grace. And that leads to the second paragraph I want us to consider. Number two, we see him confessing his power. He is confessing his power. So this first line of questions was from the neighbors. It now gets ratcheted up significantly as they take him, for whatever reason, to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, to the religious uppity-up of the day. Quite intimidating for this fellow. Look at verses 13 through 17. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the bud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I, and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them, among the Pharisees. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? Since he has opened your eyes, he said, he is a prophet? Now, John points out in verse 14 that it was the Sabbath day. And this is something of an interpretive clue, a hint for us as to what's happening here in their conversation, in their discussion. So they asked the man the very same question that his neighbors asked him. That's why John says that the Pharisees again asked him. And you can kind of tell he's getting a little perturbed at the constant questioning. So he gives a bit of a shorter answer to the Pharisees than he gave to the neighbors. He just simply says, mud, wash, see. (laughs) That's it. It comes out in verse 16 that some of the Pharisees accused Jesus of being a sinner. Why? Because, quote, he does not keep the Sabbath. Now, we know the Sabbath day is the fourth of the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You shall not work on the Sabbath day. You can work every other day, but don't work on this day. Because of that law, according to first century rabbinical writings known as the Mishnah, the Mishnah tells us that the religious group of rulers had developed all of these categories of rules to help you not work on the Sabbath day. In fact, there were 39 categories with countless regulations underneath those categories to instruct and inform you of what you might be doing that constitutes work. For instance, it was against their ritual to perform any type of medical treatment to someone unless it was a life-threatening situation. Is blindness life-threatening? No. Did Jesus heal the man born blind on the Sabbath? Yes. Ah, Jesus, you broke our rules. Of course, according to the fourth commandment, you're only supposed to rest on the Sabbath day. Therefore, they give this helpful list to know whether or not you are working. Now, surely these people in power would not use their rules to manipulate and control people. We don't see things like that today, do we? 
people in power manipulating and controlling from their positions. So these add-on regulations included all kinds of things like if you're to carry something, this is how heavy you're allowed to carry something. This is how far you're allowed to walk, how far you're allowed to carry something. Carry something. They had 12 regulations just do, had to, having to do with clothing. You're not allowed to fold your clothes on the Sabbath day. Hallelujah, right? <laughs> you're not allowed to do all these different things concerning your clothes. There were rituals and regulations, seven regulations on how you prepare a carcass. So if you kill a deer, hunters, you can't skin them and dress them. Sorry, that's work. There were regulations with how much you could write on the Sabbath day. There were 11 specific rules dealing with just baking bread. You couldn't sift flour. You couldn't knead the dough. You couldn't start a fire to cook the bread. These were all verboten, as the Germans would say. They're forbidden. You can't do it. Interestingly, the word translated mud here in John 9, it's used five times in this chapter. It's also other places in the New Testament translated as clay, the type of clay that a potter would use on the pottery wheel. It was against their regulations and their tradition to knead clay to make pottery. This word is also used of bakers and kneading dough for bread. You couldn't knead dough. You couldn't knead clay. And what does Jesus do? He spits in the ground, takes some dirt, and he begins to knead some doughy clay. I think he was doing it intentionally to break these ridiculous, extra-biblical traditions that they were living under and they were oppressing the people with. And John points out there was a division. Literally, the Greek word is schisma, a schism between the Pharisees over Jesus. Some said, he's obviously a sinner. Others said, how can a sinner do these kinds of things? So there are some, they are too invested in believing that Jesus could not possibly be the Messiah. Don't confuse me with the facts. My mind's made up. And so anything, any evidence that was contrary to their presuppositions, they viciously oppose. They're looking for whatever reason they can to disqualify the legitimacy of this miracle and then therefore the legitimacy of Jesus as potentially being the Messiah. It took place on the Sabbath. It broke their traditions. These Pharisees, in just the next paragraph, will actually get his parents involved, the blind man. They want to question them to try to get the facts straight. Is this your son? Are you sure he was born blind? You sure he wasn't just squinting hard his whole life? You sure about these things? Are the facts straight? I wonder if this describes any of you today. Your mind's made up. Don't confuse me with the facts. My mind is settled. Or perhaps someone you know, a family member, a friend, a coworker. I've heard this Jesus stuff before. There's just not enough evidence to support believing in him. John records at the end of verse 16 that there was this division again, this schism. So then what do they do because of the division? They then turn to this uneducated, unlearned, illiterate. I mean, he can't read because he's been blind. There's no Braille invented yet. This illiterate beggar with a theological question. These learned PhDs in Judaism now turn to this 
begging formerly blind man to get an answer to the theological question. What's the question they ask? What do you say about him? What do you say about his identity? What do you say about his character? Since you're the one whose eyes were opened, they ask him this question and he gives them a theological answer. What was his answer? He's a prophet. Do you see the progression of faith here? The previous paragraph in the conversation with the neighbors, the man called Jesus. Grace upon grace. Now this formerly blind beggar says to this intensive interrogation, he is a prophet. I was reminded this week of a similar response that someone else in John's gospel had. In John chapter 4, we find Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. And during that conversation, Jesus reveals something of her sordid relationship history. He says to her, yeah, you've had five husbands, and the man that you're shacking up with now is not your husband. And what did the woman say to Jesus? Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. In other words, exactly right. Ding, 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 ding. She had some insight into the identity and the character of Jesus in that exchange. And now here, this blind beggar, grace upon grace, he says, I don't know much, but I know this. I know at least he's a prophet. And I will mark, he doesn't say the prophet. He hadn't gotten there yet. But he does say he is a prophet. That leads to the third paragraph following the miracle where he will now be compelled to pronounce something about Jesus, that we can give these Pharisees and these interrogators a little bit of credit. It does seem that they do at least want to get some of the facts straight in this case that is before them. So they call some witnesses, namely the parents. These will obviously be people who can lend some credibility or some understanding about this man's situation. But I do want you to notice that they are motivated with this presupposition of disbelief. They already have their minds made up before they even ask the parents. And they're hoping that something in what the parents say is going to poke holes in this man's story and then render his story insufficient. Look at verse 18 and following. The Jews did not believe, that's their presupposition, they did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Verse 22, parentheses, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Verse 23, therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So they have three lines of inquiry. Number one, is this your son? Number two, was he born blind? Number three, how did he gain his sight? They said, well, we can only answer two of those questions. Number one, yes, he is our son. Number two, he was born blind. But number three, we don't know how he gained his sight. And even more importantly, we don't know who gave him his sight back. Now, verse 22, again, is this parenthetical statement that's inserted into the conversation by John, the gospel writer, and the inspiration of the Spirit so we can gain some understanding about why they answered the way they answered. They are fearful. 
that if they answer wrong, they're going to be condemned and they will be cast out of the synagogue. Now, to us in 2022, that doesn't sound like much of a punishment. Oh, big deal. So what? But in that day, within the culture of first century Judaism, your participation in the synagogue was central to everything. It was central to your social engagement. It was central to your familial engagement. It was central to your vocation, to your occupation, to your religious engagement. If you're cast out of the synagogue, and let's say these parents are merchants, maybe they sell something or they provide some trade or service, and they are, our word would be, excommunicated from the people of faith, are people of faith going to be coming to your shop? Are they going to be buying your goods? Are they going to be employing you for your service? No, this could be significant, not just social, but money had to do with it. There are some severe economic consequences. And this is the critical question for all of us today. Who is Jesus? Who is he? Is he just the man, Jesus? Is he a prophet, a good teacher? Who is Jesus? If you remember in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asked his closest disciples that question, who do you say that I am? And Peter, inspired by the Spirit of God, revealed by God himself, said, you are the Christ. This was the guilty thing that could get them sent out of the synagogue. You are the Christ. You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Friend, this is a question that each and every one of us must answer. Who is Jesus? Who is he? The Apostle Paul gave the only appropriate answer to that question. In Romans 10, 9 and 10, he describes the eternal promise if you answer this question correctly. He said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Friends, you too can experience and you can know this very promise of eternal life. And if you believe in your heart what the Bible says is true about Jesus, and you confess with your mouth that he was raised from the dead, you will be saved. If you believe that he died a punishing death for you, that he was really dead, three days buried dead, and on the third day he resurrected from that dead to provide new life, you will be saved. And that word saved, it's not just a churchy word. It's not just a preacher's word. You gotta be saved, right? This is a Bible word. Saved from what? Saved from your sin. Saved from yourself. Saved from the just punishment we're all due. Safe from Satan, safe from eternal separation from God. But what do these parents say? Instead of answering the who question, they pass the buck. I said, go ask him. He's of age. He can answer for himself. Now, what do they mean by that, he's of age? Well, in Jewish culture, when does a boy come of age? 13, right? They're bar mitzvah. That's the coming-of-age party for the Jewish boy. So he could have been a very young man. In fact, we read the next paragraph and we see some of his snarky tone. I'm convinced he was a teenager. No doubt about it. 
So let's read uh, this into this fourth paragraph. The fourth point is this. Number four, he is courageous before persecution. And this is, again, grace upon grace. Incredible courage he shows in the face of the threats of these power brokers of Judaism. Look at verse 24 and following. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner, he answered. Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said, what? They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you are born in utter sin and you would teach us. And they cast him out. Now this whole uh, fourth conversation here begins with the Pharisees saying, give glory to God. What this is, it's something of an oath. Like if you bear, uh, give testimony in a modern day trial, you will be sworn in to give that testimony. Do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you God. And so this is something of an oath, swearing in. Here's your testimony, your last chance. Give glory to God. Tell us this man's a sinner. You know it's true. And there, this line of questions, they really reveal what they want him to say. They want him to say, yeah, he's a sinner. I admit it. Everybody knows it. Jesus, he's a sinner. They want him to throw Jesus under the bus to save himself. He's under tremendous pressure here for this young man and what courage he demonstrates. And he makes a statement that, If you've even never read the Bible, you've no doubt heard this saying, I was blind, but now I see. What a testimony. You want to call him a sinner? I just met the guy. I've actually not ever even seen him before. But the only thing I know is that I was once blind, and now I'm standing before you with whole sight. My whole life has changed. I was blind and now I see. And here we see in this young, formerly blind beggar the impact of a changed life. Do you know that's true where you live? You can have tremendous impact just by simply giving testimony to the changed life Jesus has wrought in you. I don't have all the theological answers. I don't know how to answer all your skepticisms and your questions. I just know this. I was blind and now I see. He's changed my life. In fact, that leads to this takeaway truth. It's not on your outline. You might want to write this down. Decisive faith is characterized by personal testimony. If you have decisive faith in Jesus, 
that faith is demonstrated, it is characterized by your own personal testimony. And this really leads to an important question for those of us in this room who profess to be Christ followers. Do people see a change in your life? Is it demonstrably different since you have encountered Jesus? I mentioned earlier, kind of jokingly, that I was drugged to church my whole life, and I am thankful for that. I can't remember a time when I wasn't aware of Jesus, when I didn't have some type of appreciation for Jesus. But I do remember that marked moment when it went from information to inspiration. I do remember that exact time when it became all real to me. When I was blind, but because of Jesus, now I see. Well, unhappy with his answer, the Pharisees, they want to cover the same ground they've already covered. Perhaps something like modern-day attorneys who are questioning a witness. They'll ask the same question in a different way to try to get people to retell their story with different answers so that they can poke holes in their testimony which will further embolden their case. And they're doing that. They're asking the same question. This is now the third time he's been asked, how did this happen? And again, this answer tells me the guy is a teenager. Look at verse 27 again. I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to be his disciples? Interestingly, here in chapter 9, He's been asked all the questions. I've counted 10 questions up to this point. But now he turns the tables and he starts asking the question. You've been asking me questions. I've got a question for you. Do you want to be his disciple as well? And the text says, they reviled him. Troy's translation, why you little teenage brat. Who do you think you are talking to us like that? And they attempt to cast further aspersions on Jesus, we know, in verse 29, we know that God has spoken to, to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Now, if you've been with us in our study through the Gospel of John, you may remember that two chapters ago, in John chapter 7, the accusation against Jesus of why he couldn't possibly be the promised Messiah of Israel was because we all know where he comes from. He comes from Nazareth of Galilee, so clearly he can't be the Messiah. Look at chapter 7, verse 27. But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. And now what are they saying in chapter 9? He can't possibly be the Messiah because we don't know where he comes from. Uh, contradict yourself much? He can't be the Messiah because we know where he comes from. Two chapters later, he can't be the Messiah because we don't know where he comes from. Well, which is it? In other words, they're just trying to, uh, to confirm what they already believed in their hearts. This is called confirmation bias. Have you heard that phrase before? Confirmation bias. We all are guilty of it. Confirmation bias is this, the tendency to interpret new evidence as proving one's existing beliefs. Again, don't confuse me with the facts. My mind is made up. We are not really, in our flesh, in our humanness, rational creatures so much as we are rationalizing creatures. Don't confuse me with the facts. I'm going to interpret this new evidence in such a way that it already proves what I already believe. 
And then the Pharisees asked him a final question. Would you teach us? But that question, would you teach us, is prefaced by one of the nastiest barbs in all the Bible. This verbal insult. They said to him, you were born in utter sin. That word utter means complete, comprehensive, total sin. They're now, again, giving expression to this false philosophy that every harm that befalls someone is directly connected to someone's sin. The worse the tribulation you have, the worse the sin you've obviously committed. And so they give expression to that false belief and say, you were born in comprehensive, complete, total, utter sin. Who do you think you are trying to teach us about something? Who sinned? The disciples asked Jesus, this man or his parents? It's a nasty barb. You good-for-nothing, wretched sinner. You've got nothing to say to us of spiritual meaning. The irony of that statement completely escapes them. If it is true that his congenital blindness is a result of some deep and wicked sin, what does that say about the man who healed him of that? And if the difficulties in your life is a consequence either of regular sin in the world or personal sin, what does it say about the one who can deliver you from that? They completely missed it. Verse 34 concludes by saying, and they cast him out. And all the commentators I read this week, they believe contextually this does not mean they just cast him out of their presence, but they executed the threat that was hanging over his parents they cast him out of the synagogue, removed from the family of faith, excommunicated from the people of God, forever forbidden to worship with the people of God. And here's a takeaway truth I think is altogether appropriate in this day and time in which we live. Look at this next slide. Standing up for Jesus has consequences. Did you know that's true? Standing up for Jesus in the face of persecution has consequences. Standing up for Jesus is weighty. It has gravitas. This week, one of our members was telling me about how there was an idea floating around the place where she works that employees should have a uniform email signature with company emails. And what they said was, every employee should have included in their email their preferred pronouns. If you don't know what that means, <laughs> my preferred pronouns would be he, him, his. And what this is doing is it is showing that you are an ally of the severely oppressed LGBTQ community. And by including this preferred pronouns, mandatory in your email signature, you're showing your alignment with that group. Standing up for Jesus may mean going to your supervisor and saying, I can't do that. I'm a Christian, and I believe what God says about marriage, about human sexuality, and about gender 
and I cannot be seen as an ally of this falsehood. Standing up for Jesus has consequences. You may risk your job, but this young man's courage, I think just a teenager, in the face of intense persecution, you know what's an evidence of? Grace upon grace upon grace. God will give you the grace at your time of need. And that leads to the fifth and final uh, conversation and evidence of God's grace in his life. Number five, he, he cast himself down in profession of belief. John records this final paragraph is where Jesus re-enters the picture. He goes and he finds the man. And the man born blind cast himself down in worshipful profession of faith. Look at verses 35 through 38. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Now we'll go over this paragraph next week as we'll go from verse 35 to the end of the chapter in greater detail as we conclude John 9, Lord willing, next Sunday. But for our purposes this morning, I just want us to consider that phrase in verse 38. He professes his faith in Jesus by simply saying, Lord, I believe. The Gospel of John is all about belief. These things were written to you so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. He says, Lord, I believe. And then John says he worshiped him. The Greek verb underneath that term worshiped is the word proskuneo. It means to prostrate yourself, to fall down, to cast yourself down at the feet of a potentate, of a ruler, of a regal figure. Jesus simply says, the one who's speaking to you is the Son of Man. He said, Lord, I believe. And he fell on his face and he worshiped at the feet of Jesus who had restored his sight. And mark this, experiencing the grace of God spiritually in your life like this man experienced it, it begins by recognizing the regular grace of God that all of us get to walk in. In theology, that's called common grace. All of us have the privilege of experiencing common grace. It's common to us all. I opened up this message by saying whether or not you know it, you are living in the grace of God. You are living right now in the grace of Jesus. If you're here this morning, and I think all of you do, have some level of sight, that's grace. If you're here this morning and you are breathing, that's grace. If you're here this morning and you're in your right mind, at least on some level, <laughs> that's grace. If you're here this morning, able to worship freely, America, America, God shed his 
grace on thee. If you have something to eat for lunch, before you eat it, say grace. (laughs) Because that's recognizing that it comes from God. And do you know what all these evidence of grace should compel us to do? We start with the first step we see in this man. You simply become conscious of the person of Jesus, aware of his presence. And friend, I believe it is the grace of Jesus that has brought you here this morning to contemplate him even further, to consider his claims and his offer of free forgiveness simply by believing in who he is. And when you do, admit the common grace you are living in, friend, that will lead you to grace upon grace and to recognizing the special grace that is offered through his his death, burial, and resurrection. So what will you do today? Here's my encouragement as your pastor. Press into the grace of God. Embrace the grace of God. And that leads to my last thought. A recognition of God's common grace in our lives opens us up to receive God's special grace in Jesus. Do you see his grace? You recognize it? Embrace it. Let's go to him in prayer.